So what is the gospel? And we'll be looking at it at the book of Galatians, specifically in how Paul addresses this church that's going through this huge controversy where they don't really think that they're missing out. They don't really think that they're missing the gospel, but Paul writes this radical letter to them saying that the real reason they're having all these problems in the church, they're having racial problems, they're having cultural problems, they're doing all kinds of things that don't seem that bad, but he says the center of the issue is they're actually following another gospel. And to put that in perspective, this is probably 15 to 20 years after Jesus died. So like that can be kind of, be kind of shocking to us that a church that is planted by an apostle who saw the risen Lord was rejecting the gospel within 15 and 20 years, and probably very soon after the church was planted. That's just kind of like a radical thing. We think that like the apostles had it all together. We think that these churches that had all this, these apostles, and they probably even knew people who saw Jesus risen and from the dead and ascending into heaven, that they would have it all together, but they didn't. And so like that is, just as beginning, as we think about that, that's an encouraging thing as we think about our day and our struggles, because if they were affected by schism and heresy and all these different problems, within this short period of time, then we shouldn't be surprised when it happens in our day. And it's okay. It actually allows us to like, okay, Let's just go back to God's word and be refreshed by that. Um, so first, there's just a couple of things that I wanted to introduce as we were looking at the historical setting of this epistle, this letter to the, to the church in Galatia, uh, just that it gives that context to show how similar their day is to our own and how those things can easily apply to us. So looking at the introduction before we get in right into Galatians 1. Um, so Paul was this church planning missionary who was going around to all these different churches and he was called by Jesus himself to go to the Gentiles, which is just a fancy word for anyone who's not a Jew. So all of us pretty much would probably be in that category, um, and he's planting these different churches and he would plant it set up churches, pastors and elders, deacons, and they would then he would go to another church and start a new church. But he would continually supervise and oversee these churches through visiting, through letters, through all kinds of different means. And he is sending, and most of our New Testament is written by Paul. And it's, it's made up of these letters that are sent to institutional churches, not just individual Christians, but really the body of Christ who are overseeing people's souls. And he's writing this one to this church in Galatia, which, we, which, was, in, which was in Asia Minor, um, what we think of Turkey today. So Galatia. And most, most people believe that it was written around AD 50, which is, as we're saying, 15 to 20 years after the death of Christ. Um, and that seems like a long time, but it really isn't. Like, if you think about the span of people's lives or when they write 
history books or when they write different things like about World War II, when people still write about things like that and things about World War I a hundred years later, and we don't speculate about whether or not those things actually happened. You know, we don't look at those things and be like, wow, I, I, don't, I wonder if this is way too late. How can they remember? Um, no, they, this is their living memory, and this is something that they had. So 15 to 20 years from the death of Christ really isn't that big of a time period. Um, so as we look at this, there are, there are a couple of things that are part of the historical setting, which I think is very helpful to understand the book of Galatians. First, that the letter addresses these radical social and racial divisions that are in the church. Um, if you think back to the book of Acts and, and even Jesus' ministry, the first Christians who came to believe in Jesus were Jewish. You know, they were God's people, and they were the first ones to receive the gospel. And that started in Jerusalem, in Acts 1 and 2. And then after that, we see that the gospel with the Great Commission goes out to all the world. Uh, and that's what we're seeing in this epistle. Re- the really, where the rubber meets the road, when it's, when it's going to all these pagan Gentiles who had no relationship to God and they were outside of the God's covenant and, his, and didn't have his word. And so all these Gentiles are beginning to receive Christ and there's a lot of questioning about what carried over from the Old Testament. What is going to continue? Is there What, what was required of Christians? Um, and in this time period, there were a group of teachers in this city who were insisting that the Galatians had to start practicing all of the traditional ceremonies that the Jewish Christians believed they had to continue doing. So all the stuff from the Old Testament, all these ceremonies and these different things that Moses gave God's people, these dietary laws and circumcision and what was clean and unclean, all of those things were now being said, now you Gentiles have to become like the Jews in order to have full acceptance before God and be pleasing to Him. You may have gotten in by Jesus, but in order to stay in God's people, you now have to go through all these ceremonies and you have to look and act like a Jew. Now this, this really seems really remote to us today, but Paul, when he's addressing these issues, he's addressing something that's really an abiding, important reality and truth. He was saying that they were thinking about all these different cultural divisions and racial divisions, and they were looking at these particular things thinking that was the problem. But Paul is like, no, this is just the effect. This is just the consequence of leaving the gospel of not having the gospel as entirely central to the Christian life and to the church. Um, Whenever we start insisting that Christ plus anything else is a requirement for acceptance before God, Paul says these teachers are presenting an entirely different gospel, something a totally different way of relating to God. He has one phrase where he says, how can you continue in the spirit, or how can you continue in the flesh 
in your own ability what was begun by the Spirit of God. And he's saying you can't do it. It's a different gospel, and it's different than the one that he's preached. It's a different one that's creating all of this cultural division and strife in people's lives and hearts and in their community. Um, Paul forcefully, as we'll see, he fought this different gospel because he says to lose your grip on Christ and this, this one gospel is to lose Christ himself. Therefore, he's saying that everything is at stake in this debate. This is not just a secondary matter. This isn't just like, oh yeah, some people love to be kosher and some people don't. You know, um, Some people love this preference of music and these people don't. Um, and that leads to another point that the most obvious thing, it seems just like that it just kind of something that we easily gloss over, is that this letter to the Galatians that Paul is writing and how he shows what the gospel is and how it works in the church, his audience were Christians. Um, professing Christians as the people who he was writing to. What does that mean? So it means that simply that it's not non-Christians who need the gospel only. It's not just non-Christians who need to be evangelized. It's not just non-Christians who have to just like constantly go further up and further in into the gospel until they get converted. Uh, no, it's believers, disciples, Christians, the church itself who have to constantly relearn and reapply the gospel to their lives. And so that, that shows that there's this abiding importance to the gospel itself that we never can get over. It's very common in Christian circles to think that the gospel is something just for non-Christians, as we were saying. Um, Tim Keller has this way of saying it, that we presume that the gospel is the ABCs of the Christian life. That it's just like what new believers get is what you just kind of just start off with, and we don't need to hear it after we, we believe. Um, and that we need, just need to move on to more practical things or more advanced doctrines, or really mystical experiences, or mountaintop things that are going to get us going in the Christian life, that are going to put wind in our sails. And Paul comes and says, no, you guys have it all wrong. The, the great declaration of the gospel is written to believers. He's writing this to believers because he wants to unpack further and further how the gospel relates to all the life issues that confront us. The disunity in our churches today, the racial problems, the exclusivity, the pride, in our own hearts, cannot be eliminated or overcome with just the, the command to be better people, um, to try harder, to be better Christians. Um, but it's by calling us to constantly live out the implications of the gospel. So Christians need this gospel as much as non-Christians do. And the problems only come in our lives, in our churches, when we tend to forget that. Um, the, the fruit of the Spirit 
that Paul will get to at the end can't be cultivated in our lives either through traditionalism and just doing something because we grew up with this, nor through just constant innovation and trying to have mountaintop experiences. But the only way the fruit of the Spirit can actually happen in our lives, in our marriages, in our relationships, in our own hearts, is on the fertile soil of the gospel, being constantly learning to abide more and more in the vine of Jesus. Um, And that's why we can never outgrow the church, we can never outgrow the communion of saints, because we're just constantly having to put off our old man, our sin, and learning to apply the gospel in deeper, more meaningful ways. Um, The gospel shows us that our spiritual problem lies not only in failing to obey obey God, but also that relying on our obedience to make us fully acceptable to God and and to others. Um, The gospel shows us that even how we relate to each other, those things are affected by how we think about our identity, how we think about ourselves, how we think about how we relate to God and to each other. So our character flaws, um, the sins that constantly beset us, all flow from the natural impulse to be our own savior or to make somebody else our savior or to make things in this life our ultimate meaning and fulfillment through performance or achievement. Um, The proud or disdainful person comes from this basic problem of seeing our identity as based on our performance and thinking we're succeeding. we're, We're looking at our performance by what the world says is success, and therefore that's why we're proud. We think that we have made it. And, but on the other hand, the person who is discouraged and self-loathing comes from this identity that is based on our performance and thinking we're failing. Um, both of those things are at war within each one of us. That constant pride, that constant self-loathing and despair. And it's, it really comes from not being regrounded in the gospel as not just the ABCs of the Christian life, as Tim Keller says, but the A to Z of the Christian life. It's not just how we get in, but it's how we continue. It's how we move deeper and deeper. Um, and that's going to be, as, as we see, unpacked throughout Galatians. All our problems come from this lack of orientation to the gospel. Um, The gospel is the only thing that can transform our hearts, our thinking, and our approach to about absolutely everything in our lives. Um, Because it means that as Christians, not just as unconverted people, but as Christians, that you and I even are sinful and sinning. Even as Christians, God is saying, in my sight you are accepted and righteous. Um, That you are more wicked and evil than you dared to think, dared to believe. 
but you're also more loved and accepted in Christ than we could even hope at the very same moment. It's not when we got our lives together as Christians that God is going to be like, okay, come on back. This is a second chance. No, Jesus, is said, Jesus says like it's while we were enemies, while we were dead in our sin and trespasses that Christ died for us. And if we've been saved by his death, and that's, that's made us right with God, how much more are we going to be saved continually by his life as the risen Lord in heaven who's interceding for us, who's constantly pleading for us? And that is the difference. That's what creates this radical new growth in our lives that can easily just like, wow, I, I just see my flaws so much. Um, my sins are, are more deep than I could realize. And yet, I don't have to fall apart when I see those things. I don't have to base my identity on those things and despair. Um, God's grace picks us up in the midst of our sins. He doesn't say that those things are good or okay. No, he, he takes us out of them. And he allows us to be electrified by God's amazing grace again and again. And so we can drop, we can learn to drop our denials and our self-defense mechanisms that are all based on fear. This fear that I'm not in control, this fear of death that propels us to defend ourselves and just be violent towards others and get angry. Like if we get, we look at our anger, it's because we have to defend ourselves against this person or that person. But the gospel allows us to see the true reality of our anger problems, of our sin problems, whatever it is, our pride and despair and, and anxiety. And we can let those things go for the first time and be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, we can let our requests be made known unto the Lord. Because the peace of God, this objective peace, which passes surpasses all understanding, can guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And and that's this this new thing that this new reality that we have to constantly be re-clothed with. Um, it's something that we can never grow from. It's not something that we can never surpass. Um, and so, this makes discipleship and obedience totally different. As, the, as we'll see throughout this epistle, this letter to the Galatians, um, they were thinking, okay, yeah, Jesus' death got me in, but now this is the really hard work. i got to really match up to the problem and start cleaning myself up. I have to do all these ceremonies and clean myself up to stay in God's favor. And that's what discipleship was. That's what now it became. It's like, i got to really sacrifice everything in order to be, make God happy. Um, I got to get back on the hamster wheel, you know, like Jesus' death, that got me into the hamster wheel, but now I got to really run. And Paul is saying, no, um, growing as a Christian 
is actually learning to be less important in our own eyes. It's growing as a Christian is learning to be less self-dependent and in recognizing more of our sin and flaws and, and resting more and more in Jesus. That's what he meant by abide. Uh, that's what Jesus meant by abide. Not, you got to try harder. It's like, no, you abide more in his work, in his spirit. Um, and so we can run the race that's set before us because of the joy that is set before us. Not the fear that comes behind us. When we're driven by fear, we can just know that we need to like, okay, I'm not believing in the gospel like I should. I need to rest in Christ. Because his love is, is casting out that fear. Um, so that's really relevant today. Like That's what Paul is getting at because there are so many Christians and churches and things around us that we constantly hear, so many self-help books and so many things that fill the Christian world that are really getting away from the centrality of the gospel in all its fullness. Um, and this is why we have to constantly come back to this. And this is why this epistle became part of God's word itself. Because this is going to be the constant struggle of the church. Um, this is the constant struggle of our own hearts. Um, and that is that is something that we constantly need to reapply to ourselves and come back to these foundational truths that God's Word provides to us. Um, and just another background thing before we jump right in. So there's this interesting phrase that Paul uses throughout the book of Galatians that I think is just good to talk about for a second, and it's the term, the works of the law. And it's very much related to the problem that we see throughout the book of Galatians, and it'll, and I'll unpack a couple of reasons why it's really important to think about this. So, um, at this time, Paul's debate with these other teachers who are creeping into this church, who have often been called Judaizers, um, that they were trying to bring in. Um, a lot of these Old Testament ceremonial laws into the church as a means of making Gentiles look more like us, Jews. Like, the, like, like they look so different ethnically, culturally. They're eating their pork and they're eating all this different stuff and it just sounds weird and it's kind of like gross and so, like, let's let's make them more looking like us in order to make them really a part of the church. Um, so the Judaizers were coming in, and they were teaching this kind of legalism. 
that the, the Galatians had to earn their salvation or keep their salvation through these new ceremonial laws or these good deeds. And Paul, on the other hand, was saying that no one can be saved by obeying the law of God through this phrase, the works of the law. Um, that's something that will that'll keep coming up. Rather, we're pardoned, we're, we're justified, and we're declared righteous by God based on the work of Christ alone, not our good works. And so in this view, the, the term, the works of the law, is being defined as good deeds, this moral effort to come and stay in a relationship with the Lord. Um, and over, over the last several years, there have been many people who have come in and tried to reinterpret this, this phrase, and say it's really not about legalism. Rather, it's, it's merely this national identity um, where it's only referring to these customs. It's not really people trying to earn their salvation, but it's just circumcision and dietary laws and other clean laws. And so in this new perspective, they, they, there's this idea that the works of the law is not our moral performance, but it's just adopting these Jewish cultural problems and ethnic boundary markers, as it were. Um, and so they, they say, like, no, the Judaizers weren't really... Paul's problem is not pressing this works righteousness system of salvation that the Galatians were falling for, um, but it was just becoming culturally Jewish. Um, and so the problem is that the Judaizers in this church, they weren't legalists, they were nationalists. And so that's really the problem. Um, but this, this, this is a, a wedge that you'll probably hear a lot about the book of Galatians that I think is just, they, we can't really separate these two things. Um, the book of Galatians is really addressing that at its heart, it's that it is those works and ceremonies and that racial pride of identity and superiority that is the problem. Like that is the very that's those are just the ways that this church was attempting to have superiority over others and try to have their right standing before God based on their race, based on their cultural preferences and their heritage. That nationalism in this book is a form of legalism. Um, Legalism is adding anything to Jesus Christ as a requirement for acceptance before God, including one's national identity and preferences. And all those clean laws that we can think of, like the, the ew, icky factor, the things that make us say, oh, that's gross. Those people are gross. That's what the Judaizers or the Jews were thinking about the Gentiles. Anything that like, wow, I don't want to be associated with those people because that's, that's disgusting. Um, the, the ew factor of, that we as Americans can very much relate to. Um, there's, there's a very American way of life that we can easily 
do the same exact thing to where we don't want to associate with certain kinds of people because they look different or smell different or act differently and make us like cringe. Um, and, and really that's the same exact thing that's going on. That, that nationalism that we all are very susceptible to can easily bleed into our churches and we can confuse that with the gospel. We can confuse that with what Christ has, has declared in his word. Um, so this is, so Paul is talking about the works of the law as anything that we can boast in. That's why we know that there's, there's really no difference between that nationalism and that legalism. Is he saying anything that you can try to boast in or be proud in at all, whether it's circumcision or your diet or being, you know, on the paleo or on the keto or whatever it is, anything that's like going to make us think that we're keto diet, you know, the keto, oh. Keto. Huh? Okay. I'm saying it wrong, I guess, maybe. Um, whatever, any of those things that aren't necessarily bad in themselves, but they make us boast and make us proud and think we have our lives together. And that's what actually improves our standing before God and maybe each other. That's what he's saying, ultimately, the works of the law are. Um, anything that has spiritual pride, self-salvation, is this legalism. And so Paul's defense is saying that we cannot win God's favor by this human accomplishment or status. And I think it shows us two, two really important things. Uh, why, but why belabor this? Why, why talk about this different... These Judaizers. Um, I think it shows us first, like how subtle and how quickly the gospel can be undermined by even good things from within the Christian community and the church. Um, the Judaizers and these people who are coming in—they weren't these full-blown legalists who flatly rejected Christ. I think that's what we have to really understand, is like they weren't coming in and saying, yeah, Jesus, yeah, he really didn't know what he was talking about. We need to not even rely on his death and resurrection. Um, you need to just like fully pay for your sins and do all... They weren't saying that. They weren't saying you don't need Jesus, and if, you'll be, if you're a good person, you'll go to heaven anyway, which ironically is what most Americans believe. Um, so they weren't even going as far as our culture does. Um, it's highly unlikely that the Galatians in this church would have just been duped by it if they were coming in with this really strong, harsh contradiction to Christ's message. Um, instead, the Judaizers, this group of false teachers, were saying, Jesus was critical and crucial to getting you saved. Uh, but faith alone in him is not enough to grow into your full acceptance before God. You know, you, you may have made Christ Savior of your life, but now you need to make him Lord. You've, you've given over this little bit of your life to Jesus, but now you need to give over even everything, even more. Um, you have to adopt this full range of, of ceremonies and rules and cultural customs to show how much you really love Jesus. 
So see that? See how subtle that is? See how different that is? They weren't just coming in saying, you don't need Jesus or his death to atone for your sins. Um, they weren't saying that. They were saying that you need to continue to relate to God. You need to adopt these certain things to be accepted, to obey these particular hard rules. Uh, in the same way, this kind of like subtle moralism doesn't grow in our churches through that blatant denial um, of, of being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, to his glory alone. Rather, it's, it's more likely to be undermined by new forms demanding cultural conformity of some kind that are just as subtle as it was in this time period. Um, And then a second thing I think that we need, we see as this, just thinking about this background, is that this debate isn't coming in and it's not about the finer points of doctrine necessarily. Like it's not, it's not debating these finer points of doctrine, even though he brings doctrine in. Um, he's not only concerned about those things, but he's really concerned about the unity of the church and the community of the saints and how we all relate to each other. So that's that's like the instant thing that he's that's making him say, okay, this is a, a deeper problem, because he's so concerned about the Christian church's community and how the fruit of the Spirit is being developed in our lives. Um, because it's related to this fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. Any any questions or thoughts before we jump in with our remaining time? Um, I know that was a lot, but the I think that background will just help us as we unpack it more and as we think more deeply about this really critical thing and how how practical this is for our daily lives. Um, that this church was going through so many similar things that we go through, and it just inherently teaches a lot. Yes? So you talk about the following the laws and, and like the the Yes. Um, I think that it's partially the Old Testament and specifically circumcision as, as a means of entering into God's community, community and his covenant church. And so that they were primarily looking at that. But they were basing their understanding of what circumcision was on the, er, the early, that time period's legalistic understanding of how to relate to God. So they were taking something like circumcision that was a good thing in the Old Testament and just totally distorting the purpose of circumcision and these ceremonial laws and thinking that they could actually achieve a right standing before God. So they were taking something good like these ceremonial laws and they were just filling it with different meaning entirely. Um, Does that help? Yes. Okay. There are. It's just, it's crazy. They're just reading through that. 
Mm-hmm. I know. And, and, and just like when you specifically see like how all those things, I, I was just listening to a couple of them and how the gospel writers oftentimes are laying out the work of Jesus very much in the sequence of those laws. The, the Jews didn't even see like how Jesus was fulfilling all those things. And so these Judaizers were missing the point of all those laws, and they were taking those good things, and they were saying that they themselves are what's making us right with God. But Jesus comes along, and he's fulfilling all of those things. And does, it, does that make sense? So, so they're taking these good things from the Old Testament, but then they just were missing how they pointed to Christ. Yes? Right. Um, and yet at the same time, we've got these fruits of the Spirit that he's going to talk about in just a couple chapters. Yes. That, that is supposed, you know, like, like ideally a transforming Christian life yep. will look different. Our behavior will change. You know, and even talking about shedding nationalism, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking like, um, you know, maybe, maybe I am more tribalistic than I realize. Like, I'm not having homeless people at my dinner table. Mm. You know, I like being kind of a shiny, happy people in the Christian church. Mm. Right. And yet, it's not a moralistic theology. Mm-hmm. You just, like, help me understand yeah. how that transformation comes, and yet, is it, is it a deficit? Yeah, that's a great question. So the question is, how do we define the Christian life in opposition to moralism, and how is it different? Um, well, as Paul is going to go on and later on to say, um, a lot of people look at the book of Galatians and think that it's about primarily about justification, being declared righteous, when God declares us righteous, when we have faith at the first moment. But actually, it's much more about the Christian life. Um, Later on in Galatians, Paul says, how can you continue, as we said, in the flesh, which is by our own effort, doing things by when you began by the Spirit? And so his question implies that you can't. Like, the, the Christian life is actually, what he's talking about is sanctification, the, the growth of the fruit of the Spirit, is continually a gift. So everything that Jesus, in the New Testament, commands of the Christian life, he actually provides. Um, there's nothing in the Christian life that he himself isn't giving to you. So the very capacity to have faith is a gift. The very capacity to persevere is a gift. And the, the, the only way that we actually, in some sense, access that isn't by trying harder, by our own will, independence and strength, which is moralism, which is legalism in a different kind. It's like, okay, here's God's Ten Commandments. Those are all good things, and you just need to try harder. Um, that's moralism and legalism. Jesus is coming along and saying, not only have I lived for you, and I'm giving you, you my, my life and death as the way that you are acceptable before me, but if you think of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, this is, I, I love this passage because it's like, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. 
And then it goes on, sanctification, for we are his workmanship created under in Christ Jesus for good works, which he, Christ Jesus, prepared beforehand that we should walk in. So Jesus' obedience is not only the ground for God declaring us righteous, but it's also the very stuff of our sanctification that we have to continually go to the gospel, read his word, ask for his spirit to give us as a free gift. And that is the only way out of gratitude, thanksgiving, and now being united and with the living Christ, that's the only way that we can obey, not out of fear. It's because we're like, wow, I am so accepted before God. And his righteousness is like, not only clothing me, but it's that now his love is being spread abroad in my heart. That's, that's you know, Paul talks about that in Romans uh, 5, and then going through 6 through 8, the whole Christian life, is that Christ's love comes to us while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and then gives us the faith to believe him, and then the Spirit spreads abroad in our hearts that same love. Um, and so the fruit of the Spirit can only be cultivated when we're constantly tearing up the old man, the flesh, the works of the law, and re-sowing the seeds of the gospel. Um, does that help? Um, and so like, he's just going to unpack all those things throughout the entire epistle. He's like, you, you don't understand justification getting into the Christian life because you're missing sanctification. And then he's like, here's what sanctification actually is, and this is how it applies to your families and your relationships and work and the fruit of the Spirit and how you're battling the present evil age. Yeah. Can you talk just like really briefly, simply, like explain the concept of the expulsive power of the new affection and then how that, how that works in with how the fruit of the Spirit is not, those things are not the means for our sanctification. Right. 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 Sure. So, I mean, as as we'll go through, like the term, as we'll see, the term gospel itself means good news. The um, it's it's from the the term like the message of the good news that in in the gospel, uh, it's something that's objective and that's outside of us. So. All of these things of boasting, the works of the law and the flesh, are constantly causing us to look within. We, we're constantly bent in. We, we are navel gazers. And we just like, we think sanctification in the Christian life is like constantly fruit checking, fruit inspection. You know, like, fruit inspection! And, and we're just looking like, <laughs> inspection! And white glove. And... Um, and Paul, as someone who is sent by the risen Christ, is saying something that's outside of us. He's saying this news that can't be changed by how we feel or what we think. And it's something that's supposed to lift our eyes off of our own works of the law, whatever they may be, and look to something that we could never have made up. That we couldn't, like the Galatians and the Gentiles weren't going around asking the kind of questions that the gospel answers. And it, was, it wasn't something that 
they would have made up, but it's something that's declared over us and causes us, because the faith of the Spirit gives us, we're allowed to look out and see what God has done for us in Christ. And it's that mesmerizing, beautiful message of God's gospel. It's so good that causes us to actually stop and be like, wow, God is actually good. If we think about it, like most of our problems as we go day to day, most of our fears and anxieties all stem from the fact that we don't believe God is good. Um, we all know we're guilty. We all just know deep down that we're guilty. But the gospel is coming and making us realize, no, but God isn't just this angry judge who's just out there wanting us to get back on the hamster wheel. Um, he's so good that he decides to send his own son not to change his love for us, but because he loved us, he sent his son to do all this and more more than we could ever ask for. And it's, and it's when we are mesmerized with that that we can start forgetting about ourselves. We can start thinking of ourselves less, not, not less of ourselves, but le- thinking of ourselves less often. And that is the expulsive power that propels us to... When, 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 you, when you love someone, you, ac- you just accidentally almost mimic them. You, just, you know what I mean? Like when you love someone, you just start mimicking them. You're like, wow, that is so beautiful. That's an amazing person. I want to be like them. And that's just like, that's what happens. It's like when we, and it's so much more radical with Jesus because he actually is giving us those things that make us like him. Um, sorry, I don't mean to start preaching, but <laughs> is um, that is that answer? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Now. Yep. Um, so, what are examples that you could think of that you've seen that in the church in general, where people just yeah to, to be right before God? Um. So I think that there's all kinds of different ways that we can see that. I think we'll get more into that in a. Um, and later on, but I think that there are all kinds of different ways where we see um, those cultural problems come in, those nationalistic kind of problems come in, but also more subtle ways where um, we think that, that we're saved by the quality of our faith. We're saved by the, the, the strength of our faith. So we're just, again, we're looking in and we're like, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, but we're concentrating on our faith itself and how much we surrender and how much, um, how strong our faith is from moment to moment. So that's one way that we start looking back in ourselves and start creating, turning faith into a work of the law that we can boast in. Um, That's, that's, one, that's one big way that that can happen. Or we look for these radical worship experiences or life experiences where we are obsessed with recreating those experiences. And we can think that 
man, I'm really screwing up in the Christian life because this year I just have not had my devotions every day. And I haven't prayed as much as I want to. I mean, those are all good things. Faith in Christ is a good thing. Reading your Bible and devotion is a good thing. But we're thinking that those things show how much we are saved. Or how much, we might not put it that way, but how much God delights in us or is pleased with us. Um, so those are some subtle ways that we can do it. Think, thinking like that, that I really haven't, I'm really not pleasing to the Lord or doing well in the Christian faith because, man, on Sunday, I just don't feel anything when we're singing and praising God. I just don't feel anything. I'm numb inside. And I just like, it's hard to get out of bed. And I, and I can't do it. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to be faced with my friends or family. And so we look at, see that, that, that all that problem is, is looking in on ourselves again. And not out at Jesus, at the object of our faith. Um, our constant problem is to think that it's the strength of our faith that is, is going to solve everything. But strong faith in a, in a weak, worthless object yes. is foolish. Um, it's, it's, with Jesus, the weakest, smallest amount of faith, the size of a mustard seed, in him can move mountains. It doesn't matter the size of our faith. The weakest faith holds on to him and receives everything. And, and we're constantly being tempted to look to our faith or our experience um, as the guiding thing. I, I'm, I'm always reminded of, of John Newton, you know, the author of Amazing Grace and who was an amazing writer. And, and he said that there are usually three stages of the Christian life. And, and he says, like, the first stage, if we think of the book of Galatians kind of like this, where people get saved and they're converted and they're just like on fire with Jesus and they love him and this is like an amazing, amazing time. And then they then things start getting hard and they don't read the Bible as much and they're not passionate about things and it's hard. And they have the and they like have their besetting sins just keep railing on them every single day. And so they start like, Man, I just why can't I have as much faith as I did? Why can't I be like that? Like when I first became a Christian, um, and most people stop in that second phase where they're just miserable and, they, and their joy is being taken away from them because they're looking to the experience of faith itself. They're not looking to Jesus. They're not looking to his work. They're looking to those experiences. They're looking to the strength of their faith. And Jesus... And that those are our wilderness experiences like Israel going through the wilderness. And, and, and Jesus is actually bringing those difficulties into our life to wean us from our faith in our faith. Like that's what Jesus is actually doing. And he, he's using those wilderness experiences to wean us from faith in our experience and faith in our faith. And so that... that promised land where we're going into this new phase where we're, we're, we're able to recognize, no, the fruit of the Spirit 
having the joy of the Lord is my strength, it's, it's dying to even your faith in some sense. We have to put that away and stop having faith in our past experiences, faith in our faith. And that's what actually brings joy back. That's what actually really brings delight back. And there's so much in the Christian world today, in the church, that is going back to our experiences, going back with fear to, man, maybe the Lord just doesn't, He doesn't as delighted in me as He once did. Um, sorry, I don't know if that, that helps. Um, those are great questions. Everyone's had great questions. Thank you. Um, any, any, any other thoughts before we, I guess we have five more minutes. Um, before we wrap up. So, just as a, as a foretaste of getting into, actually getting into this section, um, we'll be discussing, you know, why we'll be reading the beginning part of Galatians and seeing Paul freak out, in some sense, on the Galatians and get, sound really angry. And, this, and he begins his epistle unlike any other letter, where before he's like, oh, I just am so thankful for these gifts that you have, and you guys have so helped me and ministered to me. And he just like he goes on this praise report. And in this one, he's like, he, he gets down to business, and he's like, yes, grace and peace to you. And he's like, then he's like, I am so astonished that you so easily have forgotten the Lord who saved you. And he just gets into it, like right from the start. So this is like a radically different kind of letter where he has to like go on defense of why he's an apostle, why the gospel message is so radically different, and why those things are important. Yeah, you have a question? Um, you may have covered it earlier, but this was one of his early... Was this not the first? They probably think it's one of his first that was around eighty fifty, within 15 years of Christ's own death. So this is probably even before the gospels were written. Um, in some, it's kind of weird to think about because we just like the gospel is the beginning of the New Testament, and then, but it's actually some of the epistles were before that, um, and and this epistle informs how we read the gospels. So that's a great, great point. Because I, I once seen a, 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 a chronological New Testament. Yes. And it'd be, it'd be in the Book of Acts, and then it would just go to Galatians. Hmm. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe I'm, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it definitely, probably could set the tone for a lot of everything else that comes with what other Paul writes elsewhere. That's a great point. Well, let's uh, conclude with a word of prayer, and then we'll be dismissed for the day. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and this exciting time that we can have to delve into your, your letter to the Galatian church through Paul. Uh, we thank you that um, you preserved your word for us in such a way that we can be confident in it and we can really see how similar we are to these churches and the early Christians. 
And that can comfort us, knowing that we're not alone, that these things that face us are not so radically different than what your church faced when it first began. Um, So we pray, Lord, that you'd be with us and that you would allow us to have a fruitful study through this. And that as we go to worship, that you would prepare our hearts and minds and allow us to be sanctified by your Spirit. And really look away from our experience, look away from the strength of our faith to Christ himself and rest in him. In his name we pray. Amen.